the proclamation of God's word. Our sermon text reading today is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. You can find it on page 7 of your folder. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. What is, of course, Christmas Eve, and so Merry Christmas. And this time of year, it is known for singing some of our most favorite songs. Christmas is known for singing, and of course, many of the songs that we hear on the radio this time of year are, are, are secular and aren't filled with anything more than just sentiment and wishful thinking. But so many of the songs this time of year are very Christ-centered and are very worshipful. And now the, the piece, the, the Christmas music piece, that really is the piece above all pieces this time of year, is Handel's The Messiah, written in 1741. George Friedrich Handel, he was a believer. He was raised and maintained his faith in the Lutheran system his entire life. And Handel would write that he always felt a very unique pleasure, that he sensed God whenever he was able to put the scriptures to music. So that is how he spent his life. It's very interesting that at the writing of the Messiah, Handel was actually bankrupt and his career had actually tanked. And yet it was during this very low point in his life that he wrote the Messiah. This oratorio has gone on to be considered what many call the epitome, the, the sum of the Christian faith. And even skeptics that do not believe in Handel's Christ would admit that the Messiah is one of the high points of all of Western civilization. It is said that when King George II first heard the Messiah, that the King of England himself stood up in reverence and admiration of who the true King of the world really is. Now, I'll admit that when I was a little boy, my first response to the Messiah was very far from King George's. I remember as a little boy, 
Uh, my parents made me listen to it, and I'm, I'm wearing a, a turtleneck and a sweater. And just why, why is it that every Christmas outfit as a kid is so hot and so itchy, just so tight around my neck? And so for over two hours, I had to listen to the Messiah. Very long, very boring. Two hours of music and a turtleneck for a boy. That is basically an eternity. So as a little boy, I was not an admirer of the Messiah. But now that I have ears to hear it, it is quite the piece. I can appreciate the glory of it. And of course, the high point is the hallelujah chorus when everyone stands singing praise to King Jesus. But before the hallelujah chorus, there's another very well-known section that is based off of Isaiah chapter 9. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, that to unto us a son is given. And so the Messiah lives on, much to the chagrin of little boys this time of year. And so the outline for the sermon is basically just to try and do what Handel did in the Messiah, that you would understand all that Jesus is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everything that is outlined in Isaiah chapter 9, so that you might end this morning with deeper praise to Jesus. So we are in Isaiah chapter 9. This will be our final Sunday in Advent. We have jumped around based on the lectionary, which is just assigned readings. And so we've, we've gone around a few different places in Isaiah. And I've mentioned a number of times now that Isaiah is a very difficult book to figure out. And so the past two weeks, we've been at the end of Isaiah, which is talking about Babylon. This week, we are in Isaiah chapter 9, which is talking about the Assyrians. There, there, there's a lot going on but it's, it's, it's Christmas Eve morning. And so just know there's some really bad guys out there that are doing a lot of bad things to God's people. And so the people are waiting to be delivered. Isaiah chapter 8, the very last verse in chapter 8, ends this way. Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's how chapter 8 ends. Gloom of anguish. I'm pretty certain that when you got your family together for a picture and matching sweaters around the Christmas tree to send out to your friends and family, you did not pick Isaiah 8.22. No, pretty sweaters, nice cursive font, gloom of anguish and judgment. But that is where God's people are in Isaiah chapter 8. So then notice with me the very first words of Isaiah chapter 9. You'll notice the very first word is the conjunction, but. So go back to, to middle school grammar, and you'll remember that conjunctions connect clauses. And the conjunction, but, is the conjunction that is used to contrast the two different clauses. And what we know from the scriptures is that the conjunction, but, this conjunction of contrast is the very heart of the gospel. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, says that the conjunction but now, those are the most important words in all the Bible. So he gets it from Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And so for two and a half chapters... In the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans, there's nothing but gloom and anguish and judgment. 
And then the contrast. But now here is what God is going to do. The same word in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. So verse 4 begins, we once lived according to the passions of our flesh, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, is going to give us grace. You see how but contrast what we deserve and yet what God has done for us in Jesus. And that is the word that is used here in Isaiah chapter 9. Doom, anguish, judgment, Assyrians, you're a slave, you can't get out, you are stuck. But here is what God is going to do. So this is, of course, a prophecy. It is a prophecy of hope. And you see in verse 6 that this but now prophecy centers on a child who will be born. A son will be given to Israel. And what we see is that this son will be like David, but he is going to be better than David in every single way. This son is going to have a government that is going to grow and increase. Now, when we think growing government, we think, ah, that's just bureaucracy, that's taxes. We do not want a growing government. But what we see here is that this son who is going to lead a government will not be an increase in taxes, but an increase in peace. And this prophecy is, of course, looking forward to the birth of Jesus Christ, the one whom we celebrate tonight, this evening, and tomorrow morning. And in verse 6, we see that Jesus, this son that is born unto us, is given four names. Now, by names, we don't mean literal names. So, John the Baptist did not call out, hey, wonderful counselor. And Jesus said, oh, that, that's my name. I'm going to run. No, but by names, we, we just mean four key components of the ministry of Jesus that are so over the top, gracious, and good for us. That this is what Jesus will be known for. Now, I recognize it's, it's Christmas Eve. We have a lot on our mind. And so the outline for this morning is going to be very simple. We're just going to look at each one of these four names, these four components of the ministry of Jesus that make him the wonderful Savior. So the four names of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is wonderful counselor. Number two, Jesus is mighty God. Number three, Jesus is our everlasting Father. And fourth and finally, Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Name number one, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Life is very confusing, and life is very difficult to figure out. Therefore, we need counsel. According to a report in The Hill, therapy for mental health is nearly twice as common today as it was two decades ago. So that's a significant increase in 20 years. And from all that we can tell, that this trend seems to be escalating up, especially amongst young people. So ages 18 to 44, there is a steep increase in the need for counsel. Now, what can often happen is, 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 is people look at my generation and younger and think, oh, just the, the snowflake generation. I mean, if, you know, they, 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 they got dropped off at school. I had to walk at school. And this, I mean, everything about this generation is, is snowflakey and weak. 
But, but, but the Bible actually affirms the need for counsel. Counsel is a good thing. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So counseling as a category is a good one from the Bible. What the Bible says, though, is just be very careful to whom you go for counsel. Who are you going to for counsel? You, you see, we need the help of others to process life. We need help in our practical decisions. What job should we take? Who should we marry? But we also have deep questions concerning the meaning of life, death, what happens next. Counsel is very good. We ought to be seeking counseling. And what we see here in Isaiah chapter 9 is that Jesus is the most wonderful of all the counselors. Why is Jesus the most wonderful counselor? It's because he knows all. You reach out to your friend from counsel, it's just advice or counsel based on what you think the Bible is saying or your interpretation of the world. But Jesus actually knows all things. Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning there is nothing and then God begins to speak. And what we know is that God speaks through his word. Jesus is the word. So Jesus is there in the very beginning. Jesus knows the reason, the telos, the purpose of all things. Jesus is one with the Father, omniscient, meaning Jesus knows all things. He is the most wonderful of all counselors. Go to John chapter 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word for word is logos. And the definition of the logos is the reasoning, the rationality of the world, the reason that holds all of existence together. That's Jesus, and he has now come to us in the flesh. And you need to have a relationship with Jesus as a counselor. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul writes, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. The wisdom of God is given to you as a counselor in the child that was born. And the best thing about Jesus as a counselor is first, he knows all things. And secondly, he is free and he is never overbooked. So we've had to make a few counseling appointments as a family before. It's all, often it's, it's very long, it's very complicated, and there's going back and forth, and there's billing, insurance, and overbooked, and all sorts of scheduling issues. And then you finally meet the counselor, mildly helpful at best. But Jesus, he's free of charge. He's always available. He has no scheduling issues. Jesus is eternal wisdom in the flesh. He is the most wonderful of all the counselors. Number two, we see that Jesus is mighty God. Here's both the glory and the mystery of Christmas. This is the wonder of the incarnation. Mighty God. That's who Jesus is. God. God is eternal in age. God is simple in being. There is no confliction in God. There is no parts or passions. God is the first cause of all things. God is the one who speaks all things into existence. God is the one who is still speaking today and upholding the universe by the word of his power. 
This is the God who caused the world to flood in the days of Noah. This is the God who parted the Red Sea and set the people free. This is the God who took down the walls of Jericho. God has might beyond all might. And what we see here is that this is Jesus. He is of the exact same substance, the same usia of God. There is no distinction in the nature of Jesus. He is God from God. He is one with the Father. That God, in verse 6, has come to us born as a child, a baby, an infant, in a manger. So, Kate, our, our most careful theologians, the most precise of language to try and get at the right definition of the incarnation. But at the very minimum, at least here in these first two names from Isaiah chapter 9, it gives us a good start to understand what happens in the incarnation. Jesus is mighty God. Come to us as a humble baby. And even though he comes as a humble baby, make no mistake, at no point does he ever lose his ability to be our mighty God. See, there's many people that like to think of Jesus just as a domesticated hippie with long hair, wearing a bathrobe on the side of a mountain, pontificating about the problems of the world. No, no, Jesus is not like that. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, and like Mr. Beaver said in Narnia, he is not a tame lion. He is mighty God. Name number three. Jesus is everlasting Father. Now again, we need some careful theology so we don't make some grave mistakes here. This is not a Trinitarian passage claiming that Jesus is the Father. We know that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, but there is also distinction in the Trinity. And so there's a lot that we could talk about there, but again... Christmas Eve morning, we will keep it simple. What is meant here, just on a basic level, is that Jesus welcomes us into the fatherly love of God. You see, this is where the gospel becomes personal. It can be very true that Jesus is a wise counselor and Jesus is a mighty God, but that is going to be of no comfort to you unless you know him experientially, unless you know that Jesus is actively using his wisdom and using his strength to comfort you. The President of the United States of America, he has some wisdom, he has some power, but I don't know him as a father. He's just a distant figure out there. He is not relationally close to me. And what we see here is that Jesus does not stay distant. In fact, he comes all the way to us. Jesus comes from heaven to become like us, to become a man like one of us, so that he would welcome us into his heavenly family, so that he can introduce us into the love of God. Theologians will often talk of the ordo salutis. This is the Latin phrase for the order of salvation. It's theologians' best attempt of trying to put together all the steps that God does of taking you from a non-believer and welcoming you into the new heavens 
and earth. So there's God's call in your life, there's justification, there's regeneration, there's sanctification, there's glorification when you meet Jesus face to face. All of that is this big process that is called the order of salvation. And J.I. Packer writes, out of all the things that God will do to get you into the new heavens and the new earth, the highest of all privileges, J.I. Packer says, is the privilege of adoption, of becoming a son or a daughter of God. That's what Packer writes. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, our adoption is the greatest. You see, the world only knows God as judge. But on account of Christ, on account of this babe that was born unto us, we actually know God as an everlasting Father. And notice the word that is used to describe God as a Father. We see that He is everlasting. This means there is no end to God's fatherly care for you. In whatever ways your biological Father has left you down, know that your Heavenly Father never will. He will always love you. He will always care for you. He will always protect you. He will always do what is for your greatest good. He is everlasting as a father. I have five kids. So as a father, I know that I have some good days. I have some bad days. And there are certainly plenty of days when I am not at my best, when I am tired, I'm stressed, I'm short with my kids, I'm impatient. Perhaps the better word that the Bible would say is that as a father, I am often selfish and sinful. So my fatherly love is far from everlasting. But what we see is that God is an eternal father. He is never short. He's never impatient. His fatherly care is everlasting. Name number three, everlasting father. Fourth and finally, the final name, Jesus is the prince of peace. We will read the scripture tonight. The Christmas Eve candlelight service, Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace amongst those with whom God is pleased. As Jesus was born into this world, the angels gathered in the heavens and they began to sing that this son is going to usher in an age of peace for his people. You see in verse 7, going back to Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 7, Jesus is compared to King David. King David is the greatest king in the history of Israel. There's certainly plenty of periods and time in Israel's life when the nation was at peace. But as we continue to read the story of Israel, especially as we are going through 1 Samuel as our regular preaching book, we see that these periods of peace did not, did not last forever. And what we also know is that even when there is national peace, that does not automatically mean that we all have internal peace. Right now in the United States, there is no imminent threat to us. There's certainly a lot going on in the world, but at least here in the U.S., that there's, no, there's, there's no drafts, there's no imminent threats, there is no invasion. So as a nation, we are at peace, and yet even in our state of peace, 
there's still disease. There's still relational conflicts. There's still violence in the city. I know that we are not under threat of attack from a different country, but there are still plenty of reasons to stay awake anxiously at night. You see, widespread national peace does not ultimately give us the perfect peace that we need. But knowing Jesus can. Knowing Jesus can. If you read the Bible carefully, you'll see that God never promises an easy life for his people. God does not promise to take away all your problems. But what the Bible does promise is that if you know Jesus, if you know the Prince of Peace in the midst of the trials, through the comfort of the Holy Spirit, you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You see, four names for Jesus. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is all four of those in equalities. So he is not more one than the other, or nor does Jesus need to take off one hat to pursue the other. So Jesus does not need to be less fatherly love so that he might become mighty God, or nor does he need to be less mighty God so that he would become wonderful counselor or prince of peace. No, at all four times and in all four ways, all these glorious names and traits culminate in this small child born in Bethlehem who would later be crucified in Jerusalem. So on this Christmas Eve morning, the application from Isaiah chapter 9 is quite simple. Do you receive Jesus for all that he is? For all that Jesus as a child was born to do in life, to give you counsel, to be strong and mighty and to fight on your behalf, to give you fatherly love, to welcome you into his family so that you might know true peace in your heart. Have you received Jesus for all that he is? See, the birth of this baby boy is the birth of the most extraordinary man. And do you receive Jesus for all that he was born to do? Because there are many that would truncate Jesus into something far less than all four of these things. They think, perhaps I like a little bit of that, a little bit of that, but I don't want the whole Jesus. I just want a little part. Do you receive Jesus for all that he is? Not a truncated, cheap version, but the real Jesus. See, there's a number of politicians that will truncate Jesus simply into a supporter of a political platform of worldly agendas. There's business people that try and truncate Jesus into an effective leader of seven principles for effective organizations. There's mystics who simply want a Jesus that is mysterious and has no definitions. There are historians that want Jesus just to be a man, but certainly not to be God. There's Muslims that want Jesus simply to be a good prophet. There's liberals that want Jesus of universal affirmation and acceptance. Conservatives who want a Jesus of universal affirmation of Western culture and tradition. There's athletes who want a Jesus that gives them a playbook for how to win a basketball game. There's legalists that want a Jesus that can be bought off by their good works. There's antinomians that want a Jesus that can be ignored. There's hipsters that want a Jesus who drinks high in coffee while pontificating about worldly systems. 
There's those that are into health and wealth that want a Jesus that gives better bling. There's people from the burbs that want Jesus truncated into a man who will simply give them the moral life of Americana. See, we all have a form of Jesus in our heads. There's, there's some lies, there's some partial truths, but what we want from Isaiah chapter 9 is we want the full Jesus as he is. The whole Christ, nothing less. There is a remarkable display of extraordinary traits that all come together in the person of Jesus. He's almighty God and also a child. He is from afar, but he has come to us to be near. He is mighty, but also has wisdom and love. Seemingly impossible traits all are found in this newborn son. It's all for all that Jesus is, all that Jesus was born to do this Christmas season. Take them all in. Because I can assure you of this. Jesus is far more gentle, far more strong, far more wise, far more forgiving, far more loving, far more awe-inspiring than you ever dared to imagine. So lean into him. Worship and adore him. He is the hope of Israel. He is the hope of the world. More specifically, he is the hope of your life. Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophecy of hope of waiting for this extraordinary child to be born unto us. And we can say in 2023 on Christmas Eve morning, praise be to God that we wait no more. That that child, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born. The most extraordinary man was born on Christmas morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise for all that Jesus Christ is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Jesus, help us to see you for all that you are, where we have false images and lesser interpretations. We repent. We pray that by grace that you would open our eyes this Christmas season to see your son for all that he truly is. And it is in his very good name that we pray. Amen.